Hey there everyone, it's Richard and I've got a little curveball for you here. This is going to be a little bit different from the other episodes because I'm actually doing a reprise of an episode that I did at the very beginning of the podcast. I think this was episode number three on university presidents and this is really an important and timely episode because the university presidents are going to play an important role in what happens going forward. Particularly in light of what Mark Emmert had to say in his July 15th interview with a small group of reporters, there was some suggestion there that the presidents were going to get involved and assert their authority and talk about what they wanted at the institutional level and then I think by implication at the conference level. And that brings us full circle to this whole question of who is in charge here. And this episode, episode three, talks about the history of presidential control and institutional control over intercollegiate athletics. And that really goes back, theoretically at least, to the 1920s and the 1929 Carnegie Report. So I'd said a few episodes ago when I was talking about what might be happening in the Senate when the Senate gets back from its August recess and the NCAA renews its effort in the Senate, that university presidents might be really important because they have been AWOL in all of these hearings, these six hearings that have been conducted since February of 2020. And back in 2014, when Mark Emmert testified to really debut by stealth the Power Five's autonomy legislation, Jay Rockefeller, who was the chair of that committee, he's a Democrat from West Virginia, he was really animated and angry at the NCAA and the whole business model. And he wanted to start hauling university presidents in and start questioning them under oath because he was asking the same question, who's in charge here and whose interests are really being protected? So as we move into this next phase of the perfect storm here, I think we need to keep our eyes on the university presidents and chancellors. And with that in mind, I'm going to just take you into episode three, and it's going to start with regular bumper music and I think a quote from Lamar Alexander. And then on the back side of that, we, we may be a little better informed about where the university presidents and chancellors fit historically into this quest to find the truth of who is in control of big time college sports. Enjoy. <laughs> Now, my second experience forming an opinion about the subject we're talking about today came from my service on that night commission when I was president of the University of Tennessee. Our commission recommendation was that university presidents take charge, assert themselves, take charge of college athletics, and take charge of the huge amount of television money it attracted, and restore academic and financial integrity to the programs. As a result, over the next several years, academic standards became more stringent. College presidents asserted more responsibility for financial controls. Hello, and welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. In this episode, we're going to continue our discussion of the in-system stakeholders in big-time college sports and the component of the circular firing squad that on paper has the most power and authority in the entire governance system of big-time college sports. And those are the university presidents. 
In our last episode, I said that I was going to talk about university presidents and then also the NCAA president, but I think I'm going to split that into a separate uh, episode. So I'll talk about the powers of the NCAA president in the next episode. For today's episode, we're going to focus on the university presidents. And this is a really interesting stakeholder group because the way that the in-system institutional stakeholder beneficiaries operate all roads lead back to the universities and to the university presidents. And in this circular firing squad framework that uh, Dr. Rice identified back in 2018, you look at the NCAA, and the NCAA, as we talked about in the last episode, is very good at pointing the finger back at the universities themselves, saying that the NCAA as an organization is nothing more than the membership itself and that the NCAA national office is just doing the will of the people, the will of the membership. And when you look at the uh, NCAA constitution about who is in charge, at least on paper. So let's look at that paper. And uh, I've got uh, the NCAA constitution pulled up here. It's contained in the Division I manual, and I've got the 2020-2021 version in front of me. And it's an interesting document, the manual itself. It's about 451 pages long. It's written by lawyers for lawyers. The overwhelming majority of it relates to its operating bylaws. It's divided into three sections, the Constitution, the operating bylaws, and then the administrative bylaws. And the operating bylaws contained all, contain all of the amateurism-based limitations that the NCAA uh, places on athletes and the enforcement mechanisms and the infra infractions process, all the things that the NCAA uses to control the labor force. And those provisions are not exactly a model of clarity. In fact, uh, Condoleezza Rice back in 2018 when the uh, Commission on College Basketball released its report, described the provisions relating to name, image, and likeness as incomprehensible. And the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics that we're going to talk a lot about in this episode likened the NCAA Division I manual to the IRS code. And that's why, in part, uh, you have universities employing compliance officers, most of whom now have a law degree and are being paid six-figure salaries to try to make sense of all of these uh, rules. But the provisions relating to presidential control and the primacy of presidential control are quite clear. And they're stated from the very beginning of the NCAA Constitution in Article One, which is titled Name, Purpose, and fundamental policy. Indeed, the, the second substantive fundamental purpose of the association is, quote, to uphold the principle of institutional control of and responsibility for all intercollegiate sports and in conformity with the constitution and bylaws of this association. And what are those principles of institutional control? Well, they are set forth in the NCAA Constitution, Article 2, titled Principles for Conduct of Intercollegiate Athletics. And the first substantive principle relates to institutional control and responsibility. That's at Section 2.1. 
It's titled The Principle of Institutional Control and Responsibility 2.1.1 Responsibility for Control. It reads, it is the responsibility of each member institution to control its intercollegiate athletics programs in compliance with the rules and regulations of the association. The institution's president or chancellor is responsible for the administration of all aspects of the athletics program, including approval of the budget and audit of all expenditures. The Constitution then goes on to devote an entire article to institutional control. So Article 6 of the NCAA Constitution, titled Institutional Control, it places primary responsibility for the entire uh, control of college sports on university presidents and chancellors. It says, a member institution's president or chancellor has ultimate responsibility and final authority for the conduct of the intercollegiate athletics program and the actions of any board in control of that program. And the NCAA Constitution takes this broad principle of presidential control over intercollegiate athletics and weaves it into its governance structure. We talked in the last episode about the governing boards, and I uh, talked specifically about the NCAA Board of Governors, which is the only association-wide governing body, and then the Division I Board of Directors, which is the only other governing body across all three divisions of any consequence. And we talked about the importance of those two governing bodies. And when you look at how the NCAA Constitution requires those bodies to be composed, you see that, um, that university presidents and chancellors dominate those two boards by design. So in the Division I uh, Board of Directors, there are 24 members and 20 are required to be presidents and chancellors. And then on the Board of Governors, which has 21 voting members, uh, 16 of those 21 voting members must be university presidents or chancellors. And when you look at the primacy of presidential leadership as expressed in the NCAA Constitution and as expressed in external commentaries and uh, critique of big-time college sports, it really begs the question of where have the university presidents been during the perfect storm era. And, and just to recap, for those who may be joining this episode new to the podcast, this podcast is going to analyze a perfect storm of events that's occurring, playing out right now, that in my judgment will be defining in the future of college sports. And this era, this perfect storm era, is going to be viewed historically as one of the most critical eras in the history of college sports. And one of the most important elements of the perfect storm was COVID. And that public health crisis really exposed some cracks in the foundation of the business model of college sports, particularly with respect to the big time powerful football interests, the Power Five uh, conference interests. And just to recap, the Power Five are the Atlantic Coast Conference, the Big Ten Conference, the Big 12 Conference, the Pac-12 Conference, and the Southeastern Conference. And those five conferences are the business of big-time college sports. And these decisions that were being made about fall football within the Power Five 
really uh, exposed the lack of presidential leadership. In fact, as these decisions were being made, you, you had to ask yourself, who's calling the shots here? And I would challenge you to name a single Power Five university president that you can associate in your mind with those fall football decisions. And the reason that you can't do that is because the presidents were AWOL. They hid behind their conference commissioners and hid from the media. And when the Big Ten and Pac-12 initially decided not to go forward with fall football and then reversed course a couple of months later, explanations were very hard to come by. And when we get to analyzing the perfect storm event by event, I'm going to talk about why I believe university presidents had been really marginalized in some of the most important decisions that were playing out during the perfect storm. But for purposes of analyzing the circular firing squad and the in-system stakeholders, we need to take a look at where this concept of presidential leadership came from, when it took hold, how it evolved, and why it has been so ineffective. To tease that out, I'm going to use the framework of the reform movements because the concept of presidential control correlates perfectly to the reform movements in college athletics in America. And that goes back to the 1920s and the Carnegie Report, which I, I've talked about in prior episodes. And then into some work in the 1950s, the 1970s, and into the President's Commission in the 1980s through the American Council on Education. Then there was the Hanford Report uh, in the 1970s. And then the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, beginning in 1991, really pulled this presidential leadership concept into the mainstream of college sports reform thinking. And their 1991 report, which is what a lot of people point to as kind of the gold standard in this presidential authority and control and leadership uh, model, really brought forward this concept from prior works. In fact, the 1991 Knight Commission report explicitly channeled the Carnegie report in formulating its uh, model on presidential leadership. And then after the Knight Commission, the Knight Commission did uh, five reports over 20 years. And, and then there were a couple of other efforts in that uh, vein of the presidential leadership. The Commission on College Basketball used that model and in fact framed the issues to point back to the universities and the presidents. In my, my cynical interpretation of that, it was that it was an attempt to divert responsibility from the NCAA national office, but it resurrected this notion of presidential leadership and control. And then in 2019, um, this is an interesting twist on it, but uh, then Congresswoman Donna Shalala introduced a bill in Congress that was going to do a kind of a grand synthesis investigation of big-time college sports, not unlike, not unlike in theory, the 1929 Carnegie Report. And uh, her, her bill didn't gain much traction, and I thought that was really one of the best pieces of legislation and one of the best approaches of all of the uh, congressional initiatives. 
but it didn't it didn't really take hold and then unfortunately for college athletics i think uh, shalala lost in the 2020 elections and she's no longer a member of congress and it does not appear that anybody is picking up uh, her work but um one of the things that's important to understand is that all of these reform efforts all these reform documents speak the same language literally they use the same thinking the same conceptualization of college sports and the relationship of the university leadership to it. They use the same vocabulary and they, uh, you know, they kind of use the same appeal to academic integrity. All, all of these reform efforts and the push for presidential control is built around this fundamental notion of the irreconcilable tension between the academic mission of universities and the uh, insidious corrupting influences of big time college sports. And I talked about that in episode two and talking about why universities were in this business. But when you look at the reform movements and the push for presidential authority and control, embedded in that are some narratives and assumptions about big time college sports and its relationship to higher education that, that aren't really spoken about openly and honestly. And let me just talk about a few of those assumptions, and then I'm going to talk about where it kind of began, and, and, and that's really with this Carnegie report in 1929. But built into the model of presidential authority and leadership and control over college athletics is the assumption that there's something wrong. And the modern iteration of uh, presidential leadership and control is built around the belief that college sports is broken and it is doing harm to higher education and to the uh, academic intellectual mission of universities. And so you see in these reports repetition of scandal and cheating and corruption and all of the things that are built into the uh, philosophical model that something is wrong. And so, much, and I think that is the product of two other misconceptions. And one is that there is this perfect academic ideal in American higher education that exists out there and would be easily accessible if you simply removed the corruption and corrosive effect of big time college sports and that there's some historical baseline of integrity in big time college sports that we can reach back to and, and it would exist if we could get control of the beast. And so much of uh, the rhetoric that flows from those assumptions has the effect, I believe, of delegitimizing not just the whole concept of big-time college sports in American higher education, but unfortunately and importantly, the athletes who participate in big-time college sports. And that is a narrative that has been reinforced and reinforced through circular amplification from reform effort to reform effort. And it has taken on a very uncomfortable patina in the post-civil rights era because the laborers who provide the value in that system and who are the real people behind some of these, the, the broad brushes that academic community paints with and talking about scandal and talking about corruption and talking about academic standards. You know, they're real people behind those 
accusations and those broad themes. And those people today are overwhelmingly African-American men. And I just don't think that some of the old school critics of big time college sports that are pulling forward these criticisms from the 1920s and then applying them in the 21st century really have an appreciation for how bad that looks. And it is really a bad, bad look. So let's talk a little bit about this Carnegie Report and what came from it. The Carnegie Report of 1929 is viewed as one of the most important historical sports documents in American history. In a 1998 book titled College Athletes for Hire, The Evolution and Legacy of the NCAA's Amateur Myth, professors Alan Sack and Ellen Starowski write that the Carnegie Report report was one of the most rigorous and systematic studies of sports ever undertaken. And then in, um, in 2011, uh, noted sports historian Ronald Smith in his book, Pay for Play, A History of Big-Time College Athletic Reform, wrote that, quote, the 1929 Carnegie Report on Amer American College Athletics is often considered the most significant historical reform document in intercollegiate athletics. And then in the John Thielen book, uh, the 1994 book, The Games Colleges Play, which I addressed in episode two, Thielen, in analyzing the Carnegie Report as part of his evaluation of reform movements in intercollegiate athletics, that the Carnegie Report achieved this status as, as liturgy, and it's been pulled forward without regard to a, a full analysis of really what it meant. And I've read the Carnegie Report, and I've read it, you know, start to finish, and, and spent a lot of time trying to dissect Henry Henry Pritchett's preface, which is really quotable. And one of the things about the Carnegie Report is that it is all over the the map in terms of identifying the problem and potential solutions. And so you, let's put this in a historical context. And, you know, the NCAA was founded in 1906, and it uh, was deemed necessary really because of some football safety issues. And there was a sense that there needed to be some national organization that could, you know, suggest or impose, but this was really a suggestion because the NCAA didn't have any enforcement authority really for uh, its first 40 years. That, it, that didn't come into play until the late 1940s. But there was a belief at that time that football was dangerous, and there were discussions about banning it. And those concerns were drowned out by the popularity of the sport and then the growth of the football stadium wave. And you had schools all over the country building these massive football stadiums. And it, it really uh, caught fire. And that led to some interests in the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching to look at perhaps writing a report on the relationship between American college sports and higher education. At that time, that really meant football. Football was really the, the primary concern of academic reformists. And it also happened, happened to be a time when big-time college sports went from a student-run extracurricular en endeavor. And as that shift 
took place where the universities were taking over the big time sports because they saw the value in it on multiple levels. Then you had these increasing uh, concerns about the impact of the big time college sports product on the academic integrity of, the, of higher education. And so there had been um, some discussions really back into the early 1920s about whether the Carnegie Foundation ought to be involved in doing an analysis of big time college sports. And the NCAA, even the NCAA uh, supported that. And again, that's at a time when the NCAA was really in a flaccid, kind of ineffective administrative organization. It had no power, really. And the, um, the concept of home rule was in place. And conferences and universities were kind of left to their own devices to uh, set their own rules and, and then to uh, comply with the rules that they agreed upon. And there was this understanding that uh, institutions would honor those rules in, in good faith. That turned out not quite to be the case. In fact, most of those rules, particularly the amateurism rules, were honored mostly in their breach. But from an educational standpoint, the Carnegie Foundation finally agreed in the mid-1920s to do a study. And the principal mover and shaker behind that was Henry Pritchett, who had been the uh, foundation president. And the Carnegie Foundation at that time was really looking holistically at, at higher education, and actually all aspects of American education. But in the, in the context of higher education, they were kind of looking at what the ideal university ought to look like and to you know, develop policies to, to promote that. And Pritchett was undoubtedly an academic elitist. Um, Ronald Smith, who I mentioned a minute ago, points that out in his 1988 book, Sports and Freedom. And he uh, unearthed some correspondence between Pritchett and, and some other people before the report was written that suggested a clear bias against big-time college sports and uh, that the outcome of that report was predetermined. So Pritchett, he... Uh, asked a younger member of the staff, a guy named Howard Savage, who was only 32 or 33 at the time, to put together a report. And Savage did, a, I think, a, almost a three-year field study of colleges and universities all over the country. And then he had a database, and he looked at uh, all the practices that, that uh, the universities employed in their athletics programs. And he talked to stakeholders, and he did questionnaires. And on its face, it looked like a you know, an objective report and a, and a serious inquiry. But some of the influences in the Carnegie Foundation at that time really were kind of outside the mainstream. Abraham Flexner, who wrote the 1910 Flexner Report, which fundamentally changed the me medical education in the United States, he was part of that Carnegie Foundation group. He and Pritchett were good friends, and he didn't do any direct work on the Carnegie Report on the American college athletics, but he and Savage and Pritchett were all like-minded, and they had this idealized version of the uh, academic community in higher education that was based on the British model and the German model, and Flexner spent a lot of time in Germany. And he had some unique views on higher education, but they were very elitist, and in his mind and in Pritchett's mind, and to a lesser extent in Savage's mind, Big-time college sports were just bad news. 
And the ultimate conclusion of the report supported that. It was really, it read like an indictment of big time college football. And the final conclusion was that, yeah, there's really a problem here and we need to solve the problem. So this narrative that higher education is in crisis and big time college sports are a big part of the problem and that something has to be done right away really took hold in the Carnegie Foundation's report. And that was just kind of pulled forward without a critical analysis of the biases of, of its authors or the context in which it was uh, written or the time in which it was written. And I think one of the things that's really important to point out, and this ties back into what I um, talked about earlier on the race issue. In the 1920s, you know, we're, we're in the gilded age of white supremacy. And you had open segregation, you had segregated school systems, you had eugenics uh, coming into vogue. In fact, uh, Flexner, uh, who was neither a physician nor a scientist when he, um, when he wrote the Flexner Report on Medical Education, he was a healthcare segregationist, and, and he had some views on the uh, biological differences between blacks and whites that really were offensive by today's standards. You know, back then they were widely accepted and you know, hospitals all over the country, and particularly the South, were, were segregated, uh, some by hospital, some by ward, uh, you know. And so you had this open acceptance of obviously backward thinking. And the problem with not acknowledging that, and I haven't read any uh, academic critique of the Carnegie Report that addresses this issue, and it's important, but when you're pulling forward the Carnegie Report, and it is a values-based report. It's not just a, a compilation of objective data. It is values-based, and you have to evaluate those, those values. And they were values that came from a racist, sexist, classist, elitist culture. And the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and the, the, these particular individuals were among the most elitist. So pulling this thinking forward into the 21st century really doesn't make sense on any, any level. But it particularly doesn't make sense when you're applying it to a 21st century business model that is based on the exploitation of black labor and the diversion of wealth from that labor pool to uh, overwhelmingly affluent white interest. It's just shocking to me that, um, you know, educated people, a lot of this stuff is coming from, you know, high-level academicians and, and high people in, in positions of power and authority in higher education. And then we're hearing it from senators, and, and I just think it's almost impossible to defend. But uh, turning back to the recommendations of the Carnegie Report, when you look at uh, his discussion of institutional control and who ought to exert it, you really see how deeply embedded uh, some of these anti-sports narratives are. And I'm just going to read you uh, the quote that gets us to this conclusion that presidential leadership is really the best path forward. And this comes from Henry Pritchett's preface to, to the report. And then he, he lists uh, all the horrible things that college sports have, have done and, and how ineffective the universities have been at reigning in commercialized and professionalized college sports. And then he says this, but there could be no doubt where lies the responsibility to correct this situation. 
the defense of the intellectual integrity and the intellectual life of the college rests squarely on the shoulders of the president and faculty. So that basic framework, this notion that something's wrong, that big time commercialized, professionalized college sports is a problem. And then the connection of that to the solution, which is presidential control of intercollegiate athletics, has its roots in the Carnegie Report. And because of the way it's been pulled forward with this kind of fawning adoration and uh, without a critical examination of what the document actually says and the motivations of the people who wrote it, you have this mainstreaming of that way of thinking that comes through all of these reform movements. And, and I'm going to kind of jump forward to the 1991 Knight Report because that was really the report that brought this idea back to life, and I think gave a lot of people in the academic community, a lot of in-system academic stakeholders, some sense that they were going to be able to fix this thing that was so wrong without really looking at whether it needed to be fixed, whether the problem was as it has been described, and whether uh, presidential control and responsibility was going to be the magic bullet. The Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics was commissioned in 1989 by William Friday, the former University of North Carolina system president, and Theodore Hesburgh, who was the head of the University of Notre Dame. So you had these two heavy-hitting academic luminaries joining forces with the Knight Foundation to do a report on intercollegiate athletics that was fueled by the assumptions that something was terribly wrong, that threatened the integrity of higher education. And there had been some uh, high-profile scandals at uh, several universities. A lot of them were football-related. And that sense of increasing scandal and corruption and all of the things that fueled the Carnegie Report were rearing their ugly heads and it was time to take action. So the commission put together a group of what they called meeting participants to help inform the commission's work. And this was a who's who of academia, athletics, and cultural icons. You had conference commissioners, faculty athletics representatives, you had athletics directors, senior women's administrators, basketball coaches, football coaches, student athletes, and, and then additional participants that included uh, Arthur Ashe and uh, Frank DeFord. And uh, it was just a really a, who, a who's who of the heavy hitters in all of those circles. And, you know, among the basketball coaches, you had Bob Knight and Coach K and Dean Smith and John Thompson. And among the football coaches, you had, uh, you know, Joe Paterno and Tom Osborne. I mean, really just a, an amazing list of, of resources and people who really were heavy hitters in their field. And so you had this, this sense of importance that was attached to the report, uh, in part because of the weight of the of the personalities that were attached to the report. And then in 1991, the commission released uh, its first of, of five reports, and this one was titled Keeping Faith with the Student Athlete, and that came out in March of 1991. And the entire report was premised on presidential control. The way that the commission framed 
the, the issues and the model that it was proposing uh, was a what was called a one plus three model. And the one was presidential control. So all of the principles that they discussed in that report were built around this one thing, and that's presidential control. And some of the component parts of that were that uh, governing boards, trustees, board of regents should explicitly endorse and reaffirm presidential authority in all matters of athletic governance. So the notion was that there weren't going to be uh, competing uh, leadership dynamics at the institutional level and that the boards of trustees and boards of governors were going to defer to the university president and centralize the control of intercollegiate athletics. Presidents should control the NCAA. That was part of the, um, of the model. And they also should control conference governance. So you had this institutional control that was based on presidential control, both at the institutional level, then at the conference level, then at the NCAA level. And those were all conceptual, but then there were a couple of specific powers that the presidents were supposed to have. And one of them was that presidents were responsible for controlling their institution's involvement with commercial television. And, you know, these uh, outsized TV contracts and the uh, expansion of sports programming and content was viewed as part of the threat to the academic integrity and ac academic mission of higher education. Then, then kind of swirling around, orbiting around this notion of presidential control were the three. And the three were academic integrity, admission standards, academic progress, and graduation rates. And then financial integrity, you know, cost and, and the larger economic environment of big time college sports. And then the third was certification. And that was an accountability uh, item. And and that one's interesting because that was one of the most practical, I think, uh, suggestions in the whole report. And it was going to place uh, some accountability measures in through a certification, an annual certification process that was designed to really look at, through objective criteria, to look at how the universities were aligning their athletics programs with standards set forth in the report. And that actually seemed to be working early on. And then when Mark Emmert took over as NCAA president in 2010, um, one of the first things he did was eliminate the certification requirement. And again, my, my belief is that that was a directive from the Power Five who didn't want to uh, be accountable on any level, uh, at the academic level, the financial level, or, or any other. And w when the report was released, it got an enormous press coverage, and it was going to be the, you know, the savior of big-time college sports and its relationship to higher education, and corruption was going to be gone forever, and all of these things. And, and that momentum carried forward. The commission released reports in 92 and 93 as well, but they were really not substantively significant. Let's see, the second one was called A Solid Start, and they looked at the first uh, year of the, of the impact of the report. And then uh, the following year, 1993, they did a report titled A New Beginning for a New Century. And a lot of that was self-congratulatory, and that's another one of the things that you see in all these reform efforts, and this was true with the Carnegie Report. It comes out, and then the, the um, authors and the proponents of it want to pat themselves on the back and say, it worked, it worked. And 
the fact of the matter is the Carnegie report had almost no impact, um, short term or long term, on reducing commercialization and professionalization. It only increased. And the same is true with the Knight Commission report. That 1991 report was influential on a number of levels. I'm going to talk about it in just a second here. But it did little to stem commercial commercialization or professionalization of big-time college sports or eliminate scandal. And the next truly substantive report that the Knight Commission did in 2001 basically was a, an admission that the 1991 report had not really made that much of a difference. And that, in fact, over the 10-year period between these two substantive reports, all the things that the uh, first report identified actually got worse. <laughs> Everything got worse. And by 2010, when the Knight Commission issued its third substantive report that was titled Restoring the Balance, and it focused on on financial issues, and there was a sense that uh, athletic spending was out of control. But it really moved away in a very subtle way from this presidential control model. I think it, and that was in some ways just a, an admission that uh, the presidential control philosophy hadn't been that effective. But uh, one of the ways that it was effective, at least structurally, is that in the mid-90s, when big-time powerful football interests in the NCAA made one of their power plays and eliminated one school, one vote governance and went with a federated system based on conference representation, the conference representatives were required to be university presidents and chancellors. And I discussed that earlier, but that really was the product of the 1991 Knight Commission report. And, you know, it, it was an interesting dovetail with the big time football interests uh, power play on, on one school, one vote, because it had the appearance of legitimizing the elimination of one school, one vote. But, you, you know, you so you had the Board of Governors and then the Division One Board of Directors now being dominated by university presidents and chancellors. But that has had little, if any, uh, impact on keeping commercialized, professionalized college sports from growing. And some, some would argue that it just uh, allowed a fox in the hen house kind of dynamic where the university presidents that were brought into the NCAA through self-selection and, and through uh, NCAA inside interest kind of grooming uh, certain university presidents to, to bring them into the fold, that it created really just a uh, rubber stamp group of presidents that were doing the bidding of the big time football interests and the NCAA national office. And I think it's difficult to argue with that assessment. And it's really interesting to see how people characterized that Knight Commission report, that 1991 report, and the impact that it's had in my intro to this episode with the music at the very beginning, you heard a quote, and that quote was from Lamar Alexander, a Republican from uh, Tennessee who uh, just retired from the United States Senate. And that quote didn't come from 1990 or you know, uh, early 2000s. That came from September of 2020. 
And Alexander, who, uh, you know, he'd been in the Senate for 20 years. He had been uh, the Secretary of Education under Bush one. Uh, he was president of the University of Tennessee from 1988 to 1991 and was on the Knight Commission. He, in that quote, believes that the Knight Foundation's initial work, that 1991 report, was a success. And, you know, he, he, his quote says, um, my second experience forming an opinion about the subject we're talking about today. And that, that topic <laughs> was ostensibly under the banner of compensating college ath athletes, examining the potential impact on athletes and institutions. That was the title of the hearing. But uh, since uh, Alexander was the chair of that committee and he initiated the hearings and controlled the narrative, it was really a, an indictment of this whole name, image, and likeness movement to get athletes some some nil compensation. He was obviously and adamantly opposed to that. And he was kind of falling back on some old uh, NCAA tired talking points about the integrity of college sports and, uh, you know, the student athlete and all that stuff. But um, he, he says in that quote, uh, now my second experience forming an opinion about, uh, about the subject we're talking about today came from my service on that night commission when I was president of the University of Tennessee. Our commission recommendation was that university presidents take charge, assert themselves, take charge of college athletics, and take charge of the huge amount of television money it attracted and restore academic and financial integrity. As a result, over the next several years, academic standards became more stringent. College presidents asserted more responsibility for financial controls. Now... <laughs> God bless him. I, I don't know how he comes to that conclusion. But there are a lot of true believers from that era that have been very influential in shaping narratives on big-time college sports that would look at that 1991 Knight Report and say, uh, you know, it achieved its, its objectives. And I, I just don't think that's a sound conclusion that, that, that you can reach about the impact of that report. But, but it, it speaks to the strength of those narratives and how deeply rooted they are in certain decision makers that will decide the future of college sports in this perfect storm. And, and that group, I include, you know, United States senators, uh, members of the House, uh, members of the fed federal judiciary, and specifically right now, the U.S. Supreme Court with that Austin case that's going to be so important. So you have all uh, these, these stakeholders kind of coming from the same perspective, and it is a seasoned white perspective and mostly seasoned white male perspective. And that, in my judgment, is why the NCAA, when they were looking for a bailout, they didn't go to the House of Representatives where the initial discussions began on, on nil compensation and kind of forcing the NCAA's hand. They went to the United States Senate. <laughs> because it is comprised primarily of people who think just like Lamar Alexander does. And, and that's the audience that the NCAA wants. But I, I think Senator Alexander is living in a little bit of a fantasy world there if, if, if he believes that the 1991 Knight Commission report actually resulted in meaningful change in intercollegiate athletics. I think there are three more common responses to the failure of presidential leadership. And one is, um, is a theory that I heard you hear a lot from Miles Brand in his 
discussions about intercollegiate athletics between 2001 and, and 2006, where his thinking is, well, let's just double down on presidential leadership. And that was really something that was uh, an element of the 2001 Knight Commission report. And instead of you know, looking at an individual president at an individual university, university the uh, recommendation out of that work was that coalitions of presidents should work together. Brand spoke uh, on those terms. And, and the thinking there was that it wasn't a failure of the theory itself. It's that it, we didn't pursue it aggressively enough or earnestly enough. And uh, I, I just, again, I don't think that that gained much traction. And then there's a second line of response to the failed presidential leadership movement. And that comes from academicians writing uh, or talking outside of the formal reform effort movements. And there seems to be this belief that university presidents just aren't, as a practical matter, capable of marshalling all the constituency groups under their umbrella to move forward in a unified way that, that would be a shock to the status quo. Yeah, in connection with that, you, you see uh, these writers citing the statistics on how long a president stays at a university and how many presidents have gone down because they tried to take a, an, an unpopular stand on an athletics issue. And all these things that, that really are rationalizations for the absence of leadership. And that line of thinking uh, happened to become more and more prominent in, in the work of, of some of these academicians. As the presidential era of NCAA leadership began under Miles Brand, and, and in my, even though he was hired in 2003, he really had influence you know, right after he fired Bob Knight in 2000 and then into 2001 with that National Press Club speech. But you had a lot of books coming out in that 1998 to 2003 period that uh, talked about uh, presidential control and authority. And when it was done in the context of former university presidents having that control at the NCAA level, there was some preemptive rationalization and excuse making that I think just reflected this sense of collegiality between the external academic writers and the uh, former university presidents uh, at the NCAA. It's like, you know, these guys are our guys. And so we're going to treat them a little bit differently than we did the prior NCAA presidents who were athletics directors. And then, you know, Walter Byers, who held that position for 30 plus years, um, was a former journalist. So, and speaking of Byers, then you have this third response to the sense that there was a failed presidential leadership uh, initiative. And that's that presidents are just hypocrites, <laughs> that, that they have been speaking out of both sides of their mouths, that they're spineless, that they are in on the, on the scam, and they don't want anybody to understand the extent of it. And, uh, you know, Walter Byers in 1995, he wrote a book. This is, you know, he left the NCAA in 1987. And this is on the backside of of Board of Regents and, you know, buyers went toe to toe with the uh, big, big football interests in that, in that antitrust suit. And he lost, the NCAA lost. And buyers took that uh, personally. And he, he carried that bitterness with him uh, into the end of his career at the NCAA. 
And so, he, you know, he lost his football empire and that was his baby. He built it and he was left with uh, March Madness and um, kind of jumped off the, the whole NCAA train as that was um, gaining steam. But so Byers writes this book in 1995 and it is called Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Exploiting College Athletes. And it is really kind of an expose on the NCAA and Byers really goes after the NCAA and attacks its core values and really just, you know, <laughs> cuts right to the bone on on some of the fundamental hypocrisies and including the student athlete, which he devised for cynical purposes to avoid workers' compensation liability. And amateurism, which he said was nothing more than camouflage for monopoly practice. And you know, he just he really went after uh, the NCAA. But he talks about the role of presidents. And here's what he says. And this will also give you a sense of kind of how, how Byers was thinking and, and what his emotional and psychological perspective was at the time. He says, um, presidents glory in all the good things about college athletics and blame others for the bad. They are more responsible than anybody else for the current hypocritical tone of college athletics. While college presidents talked incessantly about their reform agenda during the early 1990s, they were facilitating the TV scheduling of CBS, NBC, ABC, ESPN, TBS, regional syndicators, and local TV stations. Their basketball teams make a live college game available for TV producers any day or night of the week. ESPN led the pack in 1990-91, for example announcing an NCAA-endorsed 168-game college basketball TV schedule. The fact is, from the beer halls where enthusiastic students gather to the trustee level of university management, almost no one wants to change the structure or the rules of this successful entertainment enterprise. And, you know, I look at all that and kind of put it all together and, and think about it a little bit differently. When I look at all this work product, going back to the Carnegie report in 1929 and then projecting forward into the TV era and then in, into the, you know, the high stakes uh, championship game era with the CFP and, you know, the explosion in March Madness and the, the conference championship games and all, all these things that have pushed the market forward into the 21st century. Um, I see this notion of presidential control in a in a way that doesn't really fit any of of those models I just mentioned. I believe that it is the result of some flawed assumptions, and we talked about this you know earlier in the episode. I don't think that the academic interests who have been hostile to professionalized, commercialized college sports have really gone back to explore the premises that that kind of underlie this whole belief that this tension has existed and and it's present today and it, it's always existed uh, you know in American college sports and I don't think they've looked at the philosophical underpinnings of that or whether the ideals that they're trying to achieve either in, you know in athletics or on the academic side ever existed in the United States or, or could exist in the United States. And in uh, Ronald Smith's book, Sports and Freedom, he, he really taps into that and talks at the values level about how some of the beliefs about college sports in America simply couldn't survive the transition from Europe to the United States. And he talks explicitly about the 
uh, amateurism, uh, the British version of amateurism from, you know, the British aristocracy and how it is quite literally un-American. It couldn't survive in America. And he, he devotes a whole chapter to that. And I think it's called amateurism, an untenable concept. And I think we have to wrestle with these issues at that level in order to bring the thinking into the 21st century. So, you know, you had these presidents, I think they were well-intentioned, but they had a romanticized elitist view of higher education, not unlike that of uh, Flexner and Pritchett and Savage from the Carnegie Report. And then they did some self-righteous chest pounding. And when you read the reports, the Knight Commission reports, the, the language is really powerful and it's flowery and it's noble and it's regal and it's prideful. There's, a, there's an enormous amount of pride built into the way that people like, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Friday, who was an uh, amazing man, and Lamar Alexander, who's had an amazing career, they think about this uh, with a sense of self-righteous purpose that I think is out of proportion to um, the problems that they have identified, because a lot of those problems are built on assumptions that simply can't be proven up. And, you know, and that, again, that dates back to the 1920s. And remember, the presidents demanded control. So now this effort to try to kind of whitewash this history of presidential control, and that was done uh, in some ways in the uh, Commission on College Basketball report, but clearly with the Knight Commission report in 2010, when it kind of shifted the focus away from presidential control into all these you know financial matters and the minutia of the financial matters, was really a, I think a surrender, a sign of surrender. And looking back now, instead of testing, retesting the assumptions that uh, that whole reform movement was predicated upon. They're simply reverting back to some of the same thinking that has kept college sports and the relationship between the athletes and the universities stuck in the early 20th century. And, and I think that's one of the things that has been so difficult for athletes' rights advocates to overcome, because that thinking has been romanticized, you know, and it's the chariots of fire way of thinking about American college sports. It's the Norman Rockwell way of thinking about American college sports. And it's, it's an illusion, and uh, it's not true to American values, and uh, Ronald Smith points that out very eloquently in, in Sports and Freedom, that uh, you know, th this drive to egalitarianism, this drive to economic opportunity, all the things that make America great are fundamentally incompatible with the way that the college sports market operates. So this presidential control theory looks great, it sounds great, it was well-intentioned, I believe, but it has failed miserably in large part because it does not capture American values. And so that's that's kind of my take on the presidential reform movement. And I don't put a lot of stock in what the presidents are doing. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, in connection with the perfect storm and their response during COVID, they really uh, failed their universities, they failed their athletics departments, and most importantly, they failed, they failed their student athletes. And, uh, you know, it's, it's time for us to kind of reassess that whole presidential leadership model and bring it into the 21st century. All right. So that'll be the end of this episode. We'll wind this up. And so my next episode, we're going to talk about uh, presidents again, but this time we're going to be talking about the NCAA president. And we're going to dive deep into the administrative regulations 
and take a look at what powers the NCAA president actually has, because those are so important in the context of the perfect storm and who is actually running college sports. <laughs> so we know it's not the universities. We know it's not the university presidents. And I'm just going to go ahead and throw in the university governing boards because um, they are subordinated to the presidents under this 1991 you know, presidential control model that the Knight uh, Commission put out, because one of the primary predicates of presidential leadership was that the governing boards sort of, uh, you know, heal to the president's decision-making and thinking on the control of intercollegiate sports. So now we're going to look to really who, who has the power to influence the real power players in the current iteration of big-time college sports. And we're going to focus on the NCAA president. All right. Thanks for joining. And uh, I'll try to be back at you in 48 hours. Hope to see you then. Mm -hmm.